Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. I'd like to start with gas and oil pricing, which is the bottom of Exhibit B. And the only thing to say is that gas pricing was a lot more last year. I mean, it's going to average around, I say, 280 here. And the strip says 290, but hopefully it'll be better in 24. The strip says 350, and then a little over $4 in 25. Oil, interestingly enough, is going from backwardation to pretty flat. And uh, I've given some thought to that, what's going on here. And I have a, a hypothesis, which I think will be borne out in time. And that is that when operators, like for example, if you look at, I think that pricing in the $80, $70 range looks attractive, even though the prompt price was that operators sold forward. The problem I think with oil is there's no bid side of the market. If operators are offering future contracts at $80, there's no one there to buy them. So that is why you get a backwardated market. I mean, most commodity markets, from a user point of view, ought to be in contango. The price in 23 ought to be more than the price in 22 because you don't have to store the oil. You don't have to pay interest on the working capital. So when the price is at a level that seems acceptable, you're in a backwardated market. And you were in a backwardated gas market when you move ahead to say the middle of 22, the prompt price was 620 and the the 23 price was 510. Now, there was a great deal of optimism about gas. By that time, the Ukraine invasion had happened and it looked like Europe couldn't make it through the winter and LNG prices were 30 or $40. So there was a huge amount of optimism, but let's go forward to the beginning, say January of 23, Europe, was doing okay. They were making it through. And all of a sudden, the prompt price was down and you started to have a little contango here. I think what that means is operators weren't interested in selling forward. And the same thing is true now with a prompt price of 260 and a 24 price of 350. So when, when the operator looks and doesn't like the futures price, he doesn't sell. So the price tends to float up. When he looks at the future price, then he thinks that might be okay. From a cash flow point of view, it goes down. I think if you go back a decade or more, uh, there was more people bidding for oil. Like, for example, airlines, I think, used to buy their oil for two years from now or three years from now, but they got burned so badly that they decided not to do that anymore. I think the only time when they buy their jet fuel is when they've sold tickets. Jet fuel is like half of the operating cost of an airline. As far as utilities go, utilities got second guessed. If they go and commit gas to try to secure rates and they're wrong, 
their commission, their state commission says you made a mistake. So they're inclined to just stay within the current season and just arrange gas to make sure that they don't have any blackouts. What does this mean for oil and gas equities? I think that, you know, the overall market, if we turn to uh, Exhibit C, looks kind of oversupplied. That 2.8 million of surplus capacity is more now. It will be more as of July 1 because the OPEC plus countries are going to take their production down by about a million and a half barrels. And then Saudi Arabia, just for the month of July, kind of as a Saudi minister said, a present OPEC plus can go down by another million barrels a day. So you're talking about losing two and a half million barrels a day of supply. You had all those events last weekend with Prigozhin and possible uh, march on Moscow. Oil didn't react at all. Why is over oil oversupplied? I think it's because of demand. If you look at the demand for 22 at 99 million barrels and up to almost 101 in in 23, half of that increase in demand is China. And I just don't think the as we've discussed the last couple of Wednesdays. I just don't think the China demand is coming through. I think China was in a glide path of lower commodity usage, not just oil, LNG, but also iron ore, met coal, copper. And then they went into lockdown. And we all assumed, I'd say all market participants assumed, they come out of lockdown and their use of commodities will go up. doesn't appear to be happening. We are now in a position where, you know, the oil price for WTI is having trouble hanging on to 70. Does this mean you sell your oil stocks? I don't think so. They're all doing pretty well. If there's one that you've always wanted to own or add to, probably should wait. Now on gas, there is a case. Look at Exhibit B again. The last time gas got really low was in 2020, which was the beginning of COVID, and gas averaged $2.20. The total of supply over demand was a billion to a day then, or times 360 days. That's around 400 Bs, 450 Bs. Look at it this year at 2.4. That's twice as much. So we're actually doing well to have gas hold in the 280 range. The thing I'm worried about and the reason why, if you always, if you want to add to your position in Chesapeake or EQT or Antero or something, you might do well waiting is that with too much gas in storage, if we get to September, October, even though the 24 and 25 prices will look pretty good, look at the that storage surplus goes down to negligible in 24 and a storage deficit in 25, you could have very low prices in September and October. So that might be a better entry point for those gas stocks. What is the culprit here? The culprit is supply. Look at the top, dry gas production, was 91 Bs a day in 21, and it's 100 this year, and it's been going up by, you know, four Bs a day per year. Everyone looks to LNG. LNG feed gas has been going up by about two Bs a day, but if production continues to go up two or three Bs a day, and LNG feed gas continues, you know, to go up two Bs a day, you're going to have an oversupplied market. So hopefully the lower price will cause that dry gas production to flatten out. And in fact, it has in 23, that 100, a little over 100 looks good. But you need to have it stay flattened out in 24 and 25 to have gas work out. 
I'm going to stop and see if Mike or Jason, I covered a lot of ground there, see if Mike or Jason have anything to add. China, you know, I think everyone assumed that they would have a similar reaction out of coming out of COVID as we did, but they didn't line the pockets of their citizens with a lot of stimulus money. So um, the average consumer might might not have been in the same position we were. I don't have good numbers and I've got Max listening in maybe by next week or the week after and we get some decent numbers with his help. What I've seen, if we go to Exhibit A, the U.S. debt, which is quieted down now that they passed the debt ceiling, is held by the public. So in other words, if you look at 23 on Exhibit A, our federal external debt is $26 trillion, not 32. The difference is debt held by government entities for Social Security, Medicare, and I suspect it may be the Federal Reserve holdings are held there. I'm not sure. But I believe I've seen reference, and it needs to be checked, but one of the reasons China may be slow is the amount of debt issued by the provinces in China is over $20 And so they have almost as much owned by the provinces. A good question is, who owns it? The large Chinese banks have assets. Once again, this number needs to be checked, $60 trillion dollars. The large U.S. banks, and remember, the U.S. economy is still, you know, 30% bigger than the Chinese economy. The comparable number for U.S. banks is $30 trillion. I suspect that that difference between $60 trillion and $30 trillion is basically held by the state banks in China, which are the largest, the four largest are all state banks, and they all rival the size of anything we have in the United States. With that, I want to spend five minutes on a pretty obscure company that's the last column of page 20. And this is a company called NBE. I found literally by accident. And it's rather small. It's got a market capitalization of a little over 450 million. It has incredible cash flow. It has 300, it has $38 million of revenue and it has $20 million of cash flow after income tax, and they do it all with 50 employees. They make equipment that Mike is going to explain to you, taking no more than two or three minutes. We've been kind of fascinated by this cash flow. For all the people on the phone, including Mike and Jason and Max and myself, and anyone else on the phone, issue a challenge. It would be great if we could find half a dozen other obscure companies, smallish companies, that have this kind of cash flow generating capacity. What what I think we've decided here, and Jason hasn't weighed in yet, but Mike and I are thinking that we should just watch it for the next few quarters and see how it goes. And with that, Mike's going to explain in three minutes or less what MVE does. Okay. MVE is a little complicated, but they are an expert in a field called spintronics. And spintronics are essentially call it semiconductors that instead of just using the charge of electrons, they utilize the spin of electrons to sense and transmit data. It's really interesting, cool technology. And the, the, the founder of the company was one of the founders of this field of engineering. There haven't been a ton of practical use cases for this stuff until more recently. One of the areas with the most investment that other large companies are looking at is called MRAM, which is a different type of random access memory. 
that has some performance features that are better than traditional DRAM. So you see Intel, Samsung, and some others working on that. And there's a handful of other companies. These guys aren't so much focused on that. They do get some licensing revenue from some of their patents. But the majority of their business is for sensors and couplers that utilize Spintronics. And their largest customer is a medical device company called Abbott. And they utilize these sensors in their heart rate monitors and pacemakers. So it has a little bit of concentration risk. They manufacture their products in the U.S. So that's kind of a nice tailwind considering there's actually not a lot of semiconductor companies that truly qualify for the CHIPSAC funding. Jason, you want to weigh in on anything? Yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to wrap my head around Spintronics and why it has advantages over traditional semiconductors and electronics. For me personally, it was a little confusing because I think of electron spin and I think of like quantum computing, which this is not. So don't get it confused in, in that field. Yeah, I mean, the only other thing I'd add is that it seems to be smaller and more efficient than traditional methods. So the example of an implantable pacemaker, maybe they're able to make that battery last longer, which is a key feature for something like that. Great. We will, at least once a, once a quarter, we will update people on it. But I would we would love to find some more obscure companies like this to pull apart and also follow and see whether or not we can find something that grows like Topsy. That like to go to page three where NVIDIA is the lead. The people have been coming to the meetings out in Oyster Bay can back this up, but I think I found NVIDIA seven, eight years ago. The thing that impressed me about NVIDIA, I didn't know too much about it. What I remember thinking I knew that it was pretty dependent on gaming, that I'm not even sure at that time I knew the difference between a GPU and a CPU. But what would impress me is that it had free cash flow and paid a dividend and seemed to be very conservatively run from a finance point of view, which is the same thing that we're seeing with NVE. And just think from the investment point of view, we'll do our best. But I think if we can discover other smallish companies that have something that enables them to have very good margins and free cash flow, those are good companies to try to try to find. And with that, we want to talk about large language programs. And since Max is around this week, I challenged him 10 minutes ago before the call started or 15 minutes ago to uh, give us a couple of minutes on what large language programs means to someone that a senior in school, 22 years old, how much has changed between this time last year, where I don't think anyone knew about generally general population knew about large language programs. But over to you, Max, what is what 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 do you and your your contemporaries think about this? I guess maybe this will be a little disappointing, but I mean I don't really know. I mean I guess what I would say is one, I mean the overarching kind of point that I convey is it's mostly just banned at school. So it's not like I really even think about it anyways. But from my impression, if you actually try to use it, and I think this depends a lot on, on what you're actually doing at school, but I mean, I don't know if this is different if you're a computer science student and you're trying to write code, if it actually works for that. But it seems to me that the, the actual quality of work that you kind of get out of it is very subpar. So I know there's I mean, a lot of talk about oh, the, the high school essay is dead or the <clears throat> introductory history essay for a college freshman's dead. But when you actually have it, 
at least in its current form, try to write something. I mean, it, it writes something that, that's pretty subpar. I mean, a lot of repetition, it's very formulaic. You can kind of tell instantly when you just kind of give it a prompt that it's very much a surface level thing that kind of sounds right, but it doesn't actually really tell you anything. Then there's a third point, and maybe the other people on the call would know more about this, but from my understanding, um, if you try to actually make it write something pretty serious, that's a pretty big tendency to actually kind of invent stuff. So for example, if you try to, I don't know, ask it what, uh, I think I saw this example online, uh, I don't know if this is still true with the Wix update version, but for example, if you try to ask it, like what is the most influential economics paper in the last 20 years, there's a chance it'll just invent an economics paper that doesn't actually exist, and it'll just write something that will sound like a famous economics paper, and it might even invent, or give a real author, invent an author, but for a paper set that's not existed. So I guess the whole point is really to say, I think the actual it doesn't really, from an academic standpoint, I don't think it actually really creates super high-level work, and that doesn't that doesn't mean to say that there aren't maybe applications like brainstorming that can give you ideas, and kind of just like a Google search would it, it would give you kind of a cursory look at a subject from which you can apply your own own work in writing. But I guess, I guess for me, I mean, it's, it doesn't change anything academically. Yeah. Let's switch to page 15 in BioNTech, which is a company we looked at a few weeks ago. BioNTech and Moderna were the ones that, uh, well, BioNTech uh, is the Pfizer vaccine and Moderna did their own. BioNTech and Moderna are sitting there with a great deal of cash on hand with some very capable research scientists. And I noticed in, in, in reading about BioNTech that they had acquired a 200-person strong entity that they've been using in the UK to do AI. I assume I, what BioNTech and Moderna are trying to do is come up with cancer medicine, cancer vaccines, whatever you want to call it. And I think that BioNTech had been using this, and they just issued shares of stock to acquire this. And here's a question for Jason. If you're a BioNTech or someone with that kind of role and objectives and whatnot, uh, would you go and use Amazon Web Services or, or, or Microsoft to make you your own segregated cloud in order to take advantage of, I mean, obviously, if you issue shares to acquire 200 researchers in AI, you must be using AI to try to come up with faster, more productive R&D to try to get yourself to medicines that you can put into trial? Or would you avail yourself with NVIDIA just having them load up a whole server of your own GPUs? And I believe, I'm going from memory, so I'd have to go back and check. I think this entity in the UK already was a NVIDIA customer and had an array of GPUs that they were using. Mm -hmm. I, I think the, the answer depends on the technical savvy of the company. So from my experience with pharma and, and life sciences businesses, they're going to go to NVIDIA and just buy the solution off the shelf. That said, there's nothing wrong with setting up your own custom cloud deployed training uh, server on the cloud. It, it would be safe if you took all responsibility of, of running that in the cloud but that's going to require you to have software engineering and IT department that's familiar with it and, and a lot of uh, a personal overhead. Whereas if you just buy the solution off, off the shelf from NVIDIA, 
they might sell you a service contract with it, with the hardware, and you, you have some, some level of IT in-house, but you don't have to build the solution. It's just there ready for you to use. So I, I think that's what a lot of the drug discovery work will be done on. Um, and then, then the other problem is availability of your resources in the cloud. There's, there's a, the demand for these training uh, NVIDIA hardware is, is outpacing supply. So if you have the need to secure your data and don't want to have the software expertise to run that in the cloud and you need the resources on demand, you're going to buy the hardware and run it yourself. Mike and I were talking this morning. We talked about 20 minutes each weekday morning. Over to you, Mike. What, what, we, what we decided is that the more sophisticated R&D part of a corporate enterprise pharmaceutical or whatnot would probably opt to have their own servers delivered by NVIDIA running NVIDIA software. But that as you move to other functions, like, for example, distribution of the pharmaceuticals, accounting, and whatnot, then then you'd be more inclined to use Amazon's cloud or Microsoft's cloud. But uh, over to you, Mike, for elaboration. Yeah, the, my, my thought process there was that if I am running an R&D team, the last thing I want is finance breathing down the back of the neck of my R&D team saying, why are you using so many hours in the cloud? And this is really expensive. So I'd probably lobby to have the CapEx fund some R&D equipment. And then once a, once a model gets to production, you probably deploy that in a cloud. So then it shifts to an OpEx. So instead of taking responsibility to run a production-grade server, you're taking responsibility to run an R&D server, which isn't quite as intensive. But you're also giving ample resources potentially to your team. Maybe Jason should weigh in on that, but that's my thought process. Yeah, I think another consideration is where the data lives already before you want to layer artificial intelligence on top. In the case of you know HR and finance data, that might already exist in a tool that's running in the cloud. And we talked about Snowflake a lot. A, a new announcement just two days ago between Snowflake and NVIDIA was NVIDIA is going to bring the hardware to the Snowflake system and then you can just run training algorithms on top of your your data warehouse, your enterprise data there. So there's no need to move your data to a new system, to a new cloud. It's going to train it where it resides. Let's switch back to page three. When I updated NVIDIA, I tried to put in ratios of operating cost to revenue. I left the R&D flat at $7 billion, and I left SGNA flat at 2.4, left CapEx flat at $2 billion, increased the income tax, but took the revenue to $40 billion. Now, NVIDIA had been running quarterly revenue of around 6 so $40 billion is up a lot from 24 And what these numbers across the board you know, with the other chip companies or ASML or Taiwan Semiconductors, I'm going to do work this weekend and, and update some of those. But they're designed to be what the current run rate of revenue and cash flow is, guided by what it has been for the last couple of quarters and what the management says. Well, when the founder and CEO of NVIDIA said that in the second quarter of their year, they're on a January year, so they're off a month on the quarters, they were going to do $11 billion of revenues. 
the stock basically about doubled or went up a lot. And there's another 100, 150 points on the stock. So 11 billion for that quarter would get you to 40. When you use those ratios and you come down to free cash flow of around $11 billion, the company now is trading for like a trillion dollars. I mean, that's 100 times free cash flow, which is too expensive. So what we've been trying to do with the discussion, Max, in terms of large language programs, and then Mike and Jason and myself, just from a layman's, is is that number for NVIDIA not not in current terms? I mean, I'm, I'm, I think 40 will probably, you know, unless they come at the next quarter and say, oh, next quarter we're going to do 15, I think 40 is a pretty good number. But in terms of evaluating, if you own the stock, a $400 stock that started the year at $120, do you sell, do you, you know, is NVIDIA's lead on AMD and everyone else so formidable? And is the need for GPUs to run these large language programs, your own large language program, not something that OpenAI has put together? Is it such that, that this thing is going to, you know, 40 billion for the current fiscal year and like 70 billion next fiscal year. I mean, does it have that kind of potential? And it seems to me that's going to boil down to how many people like like BioNTech, like people doing pharmaceutical research, decide they're just going to have their own servers and run on NVIDIA software. Jason, what I, I know Mike and I are, are oriented towards this, this type of phenomenon happening, but uh, I think Jason thinks we're we're getting way out ahead of 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 any any uh, reasonable uh, expectation on how this is going to roll forward now and over the next twelve months. Over to you, Jason. On yeah. whether we're just being too optimistic. It's it is a very expensive stock, and and my fear is that they won't grow into that. The the growth will kind of stall. Everyone that's clamoring to buy these machines is doing so, and can the demand increase from here or can they just sustain the sales? So I think that's a big question in my mind. I think then, and as far as will people continue to, to buy and host their own hardware, the hardware industry kind of evolved to, to running in the cloud. And I think that will absolutely happen again in the future. But the good thing with NVIDIA is they're kind of setting themselves up to be their own cloud provider, if you will. So they don't want to be left out of that when that happens. I think that'll be the natural evolution of it, and and they'll be a player. They just won't. Be, they won't be just a supplier like Intel supplying a, a chip to to Amazon. Mike, we got about two minutes left. What do you think? I'll point out the fact that we're, we spend a lot of time focusing on large language models, and that is until very recently a very small part of artificial intelligence and what you can do with it. So. You think about of biotech in the case of BioNTech. I mean, one of the key things they acquired with InstaDeep was a protein folding model, and that's one of the biggest challenges is to, in a biotech is designing the protein to do what you want it to do, and accelerating that with, in their case, now proprietary models. Maybe that's maybe it's better than the Nvidia one because NVIDIA sells that off the shelf too. But I, I think the point is, is this large language model thing woke everybody up to the fact that, hey, this AI thing is real. And different companies are going to embrace it in different ways. There's really obvious 
connections of how to do it. And then the second and final point is that NVIDIA is so far ahead because of how easy it is to get up and running with NVIDIA software and hardware. There is a whole slew, and I'm going to include a video that includes Jim Keller and a number of the other premier chip design and AI software design people in the world and what they're working on in order to eventually combat NVIDIA. And you'll notice in the first five minutes of this hour-long video, NVIDIA is mentioned at least once a minute. So um, everybody's aware that NVIDIA is way ahead. And sure, competition's coming, but I think it's going to take a while for the rest to catch up. Great. Thanks for everyone's attention. Enjoy the long weekend, even though next Wednesday, uh, most people are not going to be away from work Monday and Tuesday. We will be on next Wednesday at 3.30. The 20-page memo may come out just ahead, but it'll have some worthwhile work put, put into it this weekend. With that, everyone be well and stay healthy. Take care. The views expressed on this podcast are the host alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the host nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned. 